welcome to Roots of Resilience on the front lines of climate justice, a podcast by the Global Forest Coalition. Hello and welcome to what is a very, very special episode of Roots of Resilience. I'm Chitira Vijay Kumar, your host for today, and I'm coming to you live from Dubai, where COP28 is underway. We're here with several members of our global secretariat, as well as member organizations from around the world who have all joined us to speak in a unified voice for the rights of frontline forest communities, indigenous peoples, gender justice organizations around the world who are concerned about forests, the biodiversity loss that is a reality of the world we live in today. We're going to be doing two things today. First, we're going to hear live what the mood on the ground is as we come to the end of week one. That's where we're at right now, right? And we're going to hear from two experts in the field. The first is Senior Climate Campaign Advisor, Suparna Lahiri, and the other person is Dilraj Kanal, who is the National Policy Facilitator of FECOFAN, which is based in Nepal. Dil is also one of the board members of GFC, and we're really, really excited to have both of these people in the room today to tell us how week one has gone for them, and also what these negotiations or these policy decisions mean in the context of Asia. But before we deep dive into that, I want to bring all of our listeners to COP28 because I think it's very important to talk about the role of civil society at events like these. I think it's important to talk about the shrinking space available for for, um, civil society in spaces like these. COP28 is happening in Expo City, which is a 438 hectare campus that is located between the cities of Dubai and Abu Dhabi in the UAE. The whole campus is filled with hundreds of buildings that have very innovative, uh, almost futuristic architectural styles. However, we need to talk about the accessibility of these buildings, of the whole event, and we need to talk about the layout of COP28 because I think it reflects the politics of the entire event. All the negotiations, all the policy discussions, all the policy decisions, all of it is happening in an area called B1 on the map of COP28, right? If you look at the layout, there's an area called B1, and that's where all the negotiators are. B1 is replete with food stalls, with coffee shops, with uh, washrooms. You can get water, drinking water anywhere. And the whole place is an air-conditioned, enormous air-conditioned building where you can comfortably spend your entire day and never need to step out at all. However, the civil society spaces, right, like the Indigenous Peoples Pavilion, the Women and Gender Pavilion, 
the spaces allocated to the people who are most impacted by climate change, people who are losing their lands, their livelihoods, their lives to climate change, their spaces, first of all, are about a 35-minute walk in the blazing sun from B1, from where all the decisions about their lives are being made. It's a 35-minute walk. Second of all, these spaces allocated to these frontline communities are tiny, cramped buildings that have no washroom facilities, no sources of water, drinking water in them, except maybe a random cooler or two that obviously empties out within the first half hour of the day because there are so many people in them. And to find food, again, you have to queue up for hours in the sun. To get drinking water from taps, you have to queue up for hours sometimes because the queues get really long. We are placed so, so far away, both literally and figuratively, from the centers of power. It's almost as if UNFCCC is making it very clear that we do not belong in those spaces, that we, we are going to be relegated to the sidelines, to the fringes of these events, without access to even basic human facilities, like drinking water. Every day, we see hundreds, hundreds of people making the trek from, their, from, the, from the indigenous pavilion, from the civil society hub. They make the long trek back and forth, back and forth, dozens of times to be one where these negotiations are happening because they want to know. They want to know what is going to be said that day. They want to know how it's going to impact their lives, the lives of future generations, right, the the, what's going to happen to the land that they live on. So they have to make the trek back and forth, back and forth. And by the end of the day, people are exhausted. Crossroads communities are exhausted trying to have their voices heard in spaces like this. And I think we have to, we have to really bust the myth that these are spaces where everyone has a say, has an equal voice, where everyone can even be heard. Even for able-bodied people, by the end of the first day, you are emotionally and physically completely drained. And yet, we fight. We continue to fight. We refuse to cede our spaces. We say we are here and that we will not be forgotten. And every day, every day, we make interventions. We make critical interventions into the negotiation spaces. We stand up and fight. And I think I want to open this episode by really by commending every single person here who has gone above and beyond to speak up for their communities, to make their voices heard as loud as possible, and everyone who has refused to back down. Now we're going to move in to the next segment of our podcast where we're going to hear from Suparna and Dil. You're listening to Roots of Resilience on the front lines of climate justice, a podcast by the Global Forest Coalition. 
Alright, so first we're going to go to Suparna Lehri, who is our advisor, policy advisor. Um, Suparna, can you, what can you tell us about the mood in, at COP28 UAE right now? It all depends on which side you are. There is a big divide and that divide is not only like you can see between the uh, government and the corporates or the people or the communities. It's like one side is the government and the corporates and the one side we are all. And then even within that you have uh, those uh, delegates who represent the big polluters uh, have the same observer status and then the community representative, the NGOs, the us, is the other other side. So depending on which side you are, the mood changes. I, I can see yesterday I was in a Latin American uh, pavilion discussing the road to Belém and uh, people were quite uh, kind of nervous, I would say, that what is happening, you know, uh, we are like, we are like trying our best to do what we can here, we are trying our best to raise our voices, we are trying our best to reach our government, but it seems that uh, the governments are not willing to listen to us much. So the question is, what is happening to this space, the UN multilateral forum, uh, which should be uh, equitable space for all stakeholders, including the rights holders specifically. And so uh, you you have this series of declarations during the first three days, the high-level declarations, which, which seems like very highly ambitious, uh, you know, discourse on perhaps the future of this planet but if you really get into it it does not reach or communicate to the people to those who are vulnerable those who are impacted by climate change it seems that the declarations are clearly devoid of the existence of these communities who are impacted and who are vulnerable so they, this disconnect is unfortunately continuing. Mm -hmm. And the second is this morning I was discussing with somebody and, and he was, he, and I was actually discussing, if we write a blog, uh, what should be, uh, what, what should the blog hi highlight? Mm -hmm. And he was saying, you know, this is a climate conference, isn't it? But are you hearing climate change or climate crisis, I'm hearing only carbon markets, carbon markets, carbon markets. Mm. Where has gone this climate change and climate crisis? As if those those two words or phrases have gone out of the window and in, in, in their place we are hearing strange uh, things like uh, geoengineering, you know, carbon market and they, uh, they do not even connect to the real solutions that we all are seeking. Mm. So, uh, in those terms, you know, you can see that what is happening. But basically, again, going back to yesterday, uh, 
I, I, I was saying that, yes, that's, that's unfortunately the situation after 28 years. But then I think we cannot leave this place. So we, we have to reclaim our space within the multilateral forum. And I think in that way, we should be much more positive. And if we are in this space, we should continue to do what we should do. Why Why we are here. And that's basically our responsibility. And uh, hope that we are, we are doing the correct things here. We are raising the correct issues here. Raising the voices of the communities. Protesting against uh, the distractions, false solutions, and, and trying to always kind of talk much more of real solutions, that the real pathway towards uh, the real climate actions, the rights of the communities, gender justice, you know, their governance. Uh, these, these are the things that we, it, it is kind of our responsibility uh, when we come to a space like like this, um, so I would say that in 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 that way, the first week we are fine. We had a lot of actions, uh, protesting uh, on uh, the big polluters, protest, protesting on the loss and damage fund, protesting against the dangerous destructions and false solutions. Uh, so I think. On a positive note, this is what we should continue to do and try to corner both the corporates and the government on one side while reclaiming our space. Right. So essentially what you're saying is if in the middle of this recording we hear any celebrations in the background, that's probably an oil, oil lobbyist. Um, our protests are going very strong, but as always, the space available for civil society, for civil society organization, indigenous peoples, gender justice organizations who work in climate space changes, they are shrinking. Um, do you see the tide shifting as we move into week two? Tide? Uh will shift uh, because uh, as, as I said there is now a growing despondency in that sense against uh, these kind of climate spaces but it's also true that we need to organize we need to mobilize uh, outside the space also and that's when the outside inside dynamics of mobilization uh, of the movements will actually shift the tide. Uh, and, and, and that's what we should do. And I, I, I see that that's also being done. It's, it's not that we are, we are uh, attending uh, those kind of events which are not connected at all to the UNFCCC kind of events, but they are, kind, they are coming in mm. to voice their, to raise their voice, to raise their concerns. And we are kind of extending solidarity from in, inside to them. And this solidarity uh, outside will also uh, strengthen those movements and strengthen uh, those mobilizations. Mm. 
and I really hope that a uh, lot of us are hoping for a very good uh, mobilization uh, for real action and against uh, dangerous destruction of all solutions in COP30. Um, if, if the communities and people of Brazil and Belen actually get to mobilize, and I hope they will, they are preparing for that, uh, can mobilize them themselves, then perhaps we could reclaim that space in Belen, if not in COP29. Right. So, Dil, we're going to come to you now. So, to pick up off of what we just heard, if we are having a climate COP where climate change is made invisible, civil society is being made invisible, what does that mean for frontline uh, grassroots organizations and community organizations like yours? Thank you very much. Mm, actually, as a member of the local communities i am closely working with the local communities at, at ground level who are working since last many years particularly for the conservation of forest and other different natural resources based on their community based governance system therefore the local community including indigenous people and local community all of them are really contributing uh, for the climate change mitigation and adaptation at ground level. Uh, however, the uh, major, uh, I mean, here in COP28, what I saw that there, there are lots of gap uh, to maintain linkage between the uh, community contribution and, and global level uh, a negotiation or global level policy making process because uh, this first week what I saw that the uh, definitely there are different interest group and, and, and there are different uh, uh, lobby group here in COP and, and majority discussion and, and uh, dialogues are dominated I mean dominating by the market based approach uh, and and uh, actually very limited space are available to discuss and highlight the right-based approach, the mm. human right-based approach, uh, particularly to addressing the impact of climate change at ground level, at community level. Therefore, actually my understanding and, and my experience is that without maintaining very strong linkage between community action, community activities, and, and global policy-making process, it will be really very hard to, to, to address the impact of climate change, particularly at ground level, who are really affected, who are really vulnerable communities at ground level. Therefore, my um, experience or understanding is that there is necessary to create space all those communities who are really contributing without any external support, uh, particularly for the uh, addressing of climate change, uh, at, at, at impact of the climate change at ground level, community level. Um, so here, since you've been here now for a week, and like you said, you've seen, uh, you've noticed certain trends which are very unfortunate and not at all ideal. Um, what 
is your strategy going into week two to amplify the voices of the people that you are representing here? Is a is a community activist or community member? Actually, for the second week, my strategy uh, is that continuously to consult with different country delegates, government delegates, to create some sort of pressure or to convince them to create a space for indigenous people, local communities, women, and other uh, climate vulnerable community in the final text, particularly in global step taking document uh, and uh, other different um, document uh, which are really um, uh, very important particularly to protect the right and interest of the climate uh, change affected communities at ground level. However, it is not easy because the whole negotiation process is mainly dominating by the uh, corporate concept and, and market-based uh, approach. Therefore, it is not easy. However, uh, the strategy of the civil society or the strategy of the indigenous people and local communities should be focused on to create pressure particularly to the government delegates delegates to to ensure their uh, voices and, and concern particularly in the final uh, documents mm. which will be approved at the end of COP. Mm. right right <coughs> um right so then you made a <coughs> very very important point which is that this doing this work here is not easy and without question this process cops are not designed to be equitable um, these negotiations are hard to follow particularly for um, for for community organizations who have had to undergo all sorts of trials right political financial uh, social struggles to even be here and then to follow the negotiations that are going on all day, all night, simultaneously with changes in schedules and and often using language that is very inaccessible for, uh, except to people who only do this. If you are only dedicated to working on this and you are just in the policy space, maybe the language is accessible. But otherwise, it is very difficult to um, follow along. Um, and that is, I think, partly, definitely also, you know, deliberate but i think one a necess what that means is that the work does not stop or start here the work starts with organizations like fecofan which are doing incredible work on the ground to strengthen the communities that they are part of and strengthen uh, communities strengthening basically members strengthening each other so we want to hear more about how the work of FECOFAN is actually um, that the, how the work actually starts there so could you tell us a little bit about what what that involves and is there a, is there a project that you'd like to tell us about that has been particularly successful for instance actually at, at national level is a representative organization of the community forest group FECOFAN is continuously advocating for the promotion and protection of the right of local communities over the natural resources. During the formulation of NDC and National uh, Net Zero Strategy and National Adaptation Plan, actually 
we continuously work uh, at national level to influence all those policy documents for securing the community right and interests in the document. Therefore, at national level, somehow we are being able hmm. to ensure our uh, voices and, and concern in the national policy document. For example, in the context of Nepal, the government is agreed to allocate at least 80% climate finance to the local communities wow. during the implementation of all those documents. Wow. Therefore, at national level, somehow we are being able to ensure our position. And, and, and still, however, there are still uh, some sort of gaps, particularly to ensuring the equitable representation of the local communities, indigenous people and women, particularly at national level climate change related institutional arrangement. However, we are continuously working at national level to create, uh, I mean, the inclusive institutional arrangement mm. based on the right-based uh, advocacy campaign at national level. But at global level, uh, only one organization cannot influence. However, here we are not alone. Mm. We have alliance with different indigenous people mm. and local communities. Therefore, we are here working based on the global alliance mm. I and mean, global networking between indigenous people and local communities. Mm. And we are hoping that somehow we will be able to, to uh, uh, reflect uh, somehow we will be able to uh, ensure our uh, voices and concern in the uh, final decision of the COP. But uh, the networking, the alliance uh, building is really very important. Mm -hmm. Working together uh, to influence uh, not only the government delegates but uh, the whole negotiation process, the alliance building and networking between indigenous people, local community and vulnerable group is very important. Mm -hmm. And I am hoping that we'll be, mm -hmm. somehow we'll be able to work in that, in that way. Mm -hmm. That is our strategy. Mm. Oh, that's incredible. And also because our listeners are joining in from different parts of the world and most of them uh, might have never been to Nepal. So could you give us like, some context for what are the challenges that you are up against in terms of climate change in Nepal right now? Like, what is what is uh, uh, what would you say your biggest concerns? Uh, the the main impact of the climate change, particularly at, at, at country level, is that there is um, huge impact, particularly in mountain ecosystem, uh, um, because. Majority people actually are depending on mountain ecosystem for their livelihood, for grazing in the high hill area, for collecting um, very important valuable medicinal and aromatic plants, collecting from the high mountain, uh, which is one of the main source of livelihood for the uh, forest dependent, natural resource dependent indigenous people and local communities. But due to impact, uh, due to increase in the temperature, uh, and, and there are lots of impact, particularly in the wild species. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is huge impact in the mountain ecosystem due to impact in the uh, mountain. Uh, more than 22 uh, glacier lakes are really very critical position. Anytime mm -hmm. they may be outbrushed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but unfortunately, due to lack of technical support from the global level, there is no any early warning system. Um, what will happen if outburst any any uh, if there is happen any outburst activities uh, in the glacier lake that is the huge uh, i mean some sort of impact mm -hmm. even in the lowland uh, uh, due to 
irregularity in the mansion and and other uh, increasing of the different new digits there are lots of impact mm -hmm. uh, and and people are not being able to cope all those uh, new challenges mm. uh, created uh, due to the impact of the climate change mm. but people are still struggling uh, to uh, adopt all those uh, impact by utilizing their own traditional knowledge and in other different um, community or customary practices mm -hmm. but uh, it will be not sufficient therefore there is necessary to uh, provide huge uh, support from the uh, developed country particularly in the least developing country mm -hmm. uh, and who are uh, the community who are really affecting from the impact of the climate change at ground level at community level mm, right right so if you had one message for all the world leaders who are here at cop 28 from fecofan what would it be mm. the important i mean one of the important message to the global leader uh, from our community is that due to uh, impact of climate change the life of the people are being really very difficult at ground level therefore very just here and equitable and accessible financing and other technical support is very urgent therefore they have to consider this type of um, uh, i mean support and and, and uh, commitment mm -hmm. they need to make some sort of commitment mm -hmm. to provide uh, imme uh, immediately and urgent support to the local communities who are really affected from the climate change impact of the climate change Oh absolutely thank you for underlining that urgency and how it actually it the, the real world consequences of this right um thank you so much there thank you yeah uh now we're going to we're going to pull the lens back a little bit because as we know this podcast is also really we're looking to understand what real solutions to climate change are and what false solutions are right and in every episode we've heard how different false solutions are impacting different regions of the planet and we've heard now from uh the the perspective of how it's impacting nepal now we're going to take a more birds eye view of uh asia to understand how what is happening in terms of the impacts of false solutions in the region what are the different ways in which they are playing out uh there over to you sparna the impact of false solutions uh it's 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 not not very new mm. like the the moment as we as we know the community loses their rights you know land and rights to governance mm. the impact has always been there and and that's that's negative impact is huge and it's and it's visible uh, around the asia pacific itself because um slowly in the in the first phase if you see the struggles and movements were built mostly against infrastructure uh, which uh, kind of uh, eroded the uh, eroded or 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 made inroads into the territories of the indigenous people and communities mm. and that was like mining you know big dams 
then uh, roads, yeah. highways. Yeah. And now, unfortunately, it is the in the name of climate action. So, uh, India is going into... Uh, earlier, India was part of the CDM, you know, regime. China and India were the highest projects from the Green Development Mechanism War and it had terrible impact on, on the communities which were weaving in and around the project sites. Uh, loss of land, pollution, environmental impacts, all, all there, in, including the sponge iron units, including the plantations that were forcibly made, including the big dams which went in for carbon credits. Uh, now India is uh, going into for uh, establishing a carbon credit market and a biodiversity market. So we need to understand what is going to come. Uh, if you see Indonesia, Indo Indonesia is also going in for a carbon market. And then uh, they are part of the bioenergy uh, generation supply chain now. Uh, there is already studies which are coming out of uh, reflecting yeah. how the uh, how being a part of the supply chain uh, will actually uh, impact on the uh, on the forest communities with uh, deforestation rate increasing and also uh, as part of the just energy transition, so-called just energy transition policy and mechanism, India, uh, Indonesia is also going to be uh, generating bioenergy. There are some, some bioenergy plants already there with terrible implications. But now that they are trying to kind of uh, extend the life of coal with uh, mixing 10 to 15 percent of biomass in, into the coal-fired plants, which means that uh, this phasing out or phasing down, as the uh, COP language says, uh, is going to be tough. And more than that, as we know, they will they will now say that you know the coal that we have used is being abated. Means the coal that they have used will not contribute to increase of emissions simply because uh, it is being co-fired with biomass, number one. But at the same time, uh, Indonesia, which receives uh, forest finance next to Brazil, is also next to Brazil in rate of deforestation. So that has its own implications on uh, rights, violations, and impact on the communities. Then we are seeing in terms of East Asia how this bioenergy uh, is rapidly scaling up, including South Korea, and the uh, establishment of bioenergy and carbon capture technology. So it's 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 not only the South Asia, Southeast Asian countries acting as source source of the feedstock for bioenergy plants, but much more is going to be needed. If you have a 
bioenergy and carbon capture mm. plant and and that's not very safe that's not very scientific uh, ultimately it does not result in uh, re- reduction of in emission at all uh, if you see the iron countries or those which have uh, kind of the length of coastline is is almost like half to 3/4 of the countries uh the sea rising uh, the coastal region being inundated the storms and typhoons which are hitting philippines you know the east asian countries are continuing and but we are not able to see a concerted action on the part of the regional governments to really uh, kind of take policies or actions uh, to mitigate climate change rather what we are hearing in spaces like cop or climate conferences globally that for all these so called climate actions or the actions that they have put in their nationally determined contribution a uh, country re report that they have to file uh, since the paris agreement mm. they will need climate finance mm. as if if climate finance is not flowing to them mm. they will just sit uh, like a duck and mm. and do nothing mm. and that's the situation un- unfortunately uh, that i i can see and i also act acknowledge that climate finance is something which really the small island countries in the asia pacific need but then the same asia pacific island countries are also in invaded by carbon projects are also invaded by bioenergy projects so that makes their vulnerability uh increase at a rate which is incredible uh, and but so those are not the solutions for this kind of countries mm. and we we also regionally and globally we we are not seeing a real way out to support these countries other than these countries along with the other developing countries uh screaming for climate finance so at this point of time i don't find anything that is kind of you know coming out from the governments on both sides to support the communities and the people in this situation it's as if the people and the communities are left to fend for themselves and, and that's basically have have happening and you can see it very much visible in the agriculture sector they are the most affected by the changes in climate and they are trying to fight it out by their own resilience by whatever they can by their own traditional knowledge or whatever is useful to them but all we see are being talked of in terms of little bit of what insurance mm. uh but then the same kind of chemical fertilizer the same high yielding seeds the same market 
being manipulated when they don't even get a remunerative price uh, is continuing actually. Uh, so there, there is no other way for the community and the people than to rise against and, you know, chart their own path out of this situation and clearly put the government in a situation where the government will be forced to act what they should have done years back. If you had a message to the leaders of Asian countries, that's not have to be at COP, but in general, if you had a message for them and you had to deliver it to them in one minute and they had to listen to you, what would it be? I think they have to have a very nuanced stand on this whole issue of conditional uh, climate action, you know. We don't get finance, so we won't take action. But there are, there are enough finance available in countries like India, Indonesia, China, you know. And they should start a pro process of using that whatever public finance they have to at least take those kind of actions which are possible, which are immediate, which are rapid. And kind of and kind of forge a regional alliance to support the region. You know, I think it's a responsibility of big countries like India, China, Indonesia to come out and have a re regional alliance to support the countries. Yes. And 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 not like scream hoarse that you know we are not getting climate finance. What is happening? India does not need climate finance, mm -hmm. actually. It has enough public finance. China also is at the same low. So I would say that this is the hour where you have to support each other mutually within the region, you know, mm -hmm. and and uh, get, get things going. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think this is one of the places definitely, if not one of the main places, uh, the main place to do it uh, is here at COP, and that's why we we particularly appreciate um, uh, this as a space where uh, leaders in the space, like Suparna and Dale, are able to come together and sit at a table and talk to us about what they're seeing. Thank you so much to both of you for this incredible episode, for condensing so many complex ideas and um, issues into a short 30 minutes. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Thank you for listening. Roots of Resilience was produced by the Global Forest Coalition with support from Bread for the World. Our theme music is by the Garifuna Collective with permission from Stone Tree Records. Editing was done by Ismail Wolf and Shatira Vijayakumar. I'm Megan Morrissey. Be sure to join us for more episodes of Roots and Resilience and visit our website at globalforestcoalition.org.